Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. For all the brilliant blaze of his life, Sarduri II's eventual passing was barely a muffled whisper. The man who'd made the Assyrians tremble had proved no match for Tiglath-Pileser, who'd invaded Urartu, defeated his army, and besieged the king in his capital. Vanquished, but not killed, and that's the spot where the trail begins to go cold. According to historian Christoph Hipp, we can only speculate what happened to the Arartian king after the campaign. The defeat may have stimulated the opposition into action against Sarduri, who'd failed to prevent the Assyrians from devastating the countryside. Whatever the details, it soon became clear that Sarduri was gone, replaced on the throne by a figure named Ursa or Rusa. Now, we know that Sarduri had a son named Rusa. The problem is, this may not have been that same guy. Hip lays out three possible scenarios, each based on minimal evidence. The traditional theory assumes that after 735, Sarduri's son, Rusa, peacefully took power in Urartu from his father. A second theory claims that after the reign of Sarduri II, his son and namesake, Sarduri III, was in power for a short period of time, as testified to in a single Urartian inscription. Then, soon after, Sarduri III was replaced by his own son, named Rusa. The third possibility is that the defeat of 735 was so disastrous that it resulted in a coup d'etat, one that saw Sarduri II overthrown by a usurper named Rusa, the son of Aramena. Hip notes that the paucity of the source material makes it difficult to judge which scenario is most likely. As podcaster David Crowther often says, you pays your money and you takes your chances. Whoever he was, the new King Rusa showed substantial military prowess. Hip relates the letter of a local ruler named Asur Leu of the Zagros kingdom of Kerala. The letter documents the campaign of an Assyrian Rab Shakeh, or chief cupbearer, against King Rusa's Urartu. In it, Asur Leu relates that the new Urartian king managed to inflict a heavy defeat on the Rab Shakeh at an unspecified location. According to the letter, the Assyrian army was totally annihilated, with not a single soldier making it back to Assyria. He continues that the defeat of the army and death of the Rabshakeh enabled Rusa to launch an attack on the forts located in the chief cupbearer's province, 
presumed to be located somewhere in northern Assyria. This campaign took place sometime between 734 and 727, when Tiglath-Pileser was mainly focused on Syria and Babylonia. But Rusa's advance was sufficiently threatening for the Assyrian king to respond. A follow-up campaign was also recorded by the same Asur-Leu of Kerala. He begins with some background involving a war between King Rusa of Urartu and the ruler of the kingdom of Atini in Zamua. And I'll repost a Zagros map I've been using for my Patreon mini-episodes. The ruler of Atini is the attacker, and from the report, we learn that he's already won two victories over the Urartians. Rusa sets out from Tushpa to face the Atenian threat for a third time, but on the way to the battlefield, he decides to return on hearing about the Assyrian king's invasion. In the meantime, Asurleu launches assaults on Rusa's forts on the opposite side of the Lesser Zab River from the previously conquered Urartian city of Sarduriani, which the Assyrians apparently turned into a military base. So at the time, Kerala was allied with Assyria. We don't have the details of the conflict's outcome, but we do know that Rusa remained king of Urartu all through the reign of Shalmaneser V and into the current reign of Sargon II. The reason that neither king campaigned in Urartu is probably because Rusa stopped testing Assyria's frontiers. Instead, he turned his attention north to the Ararat Valley, Lake Savan, and the southern approaches to the Caucasus. He also founded a new fortress city called Rusa Helini, the city of Rusa, at Toprakale, just east of Tushpa. But according to historian Mirja Salvini, it was Rusa's activities in the kingdom of Manea that catalyzed the next major conflict. I've touched on Manea a few times in some of my Patreon mini-episodes, but just to bring folks up to speed, Manea is a large kingdom in the Zagros Mountains, southeast of Lake Urmia. And again, you can refer to the Zagros map I've posted. The Manaeans themselves were a Hurrian people, with a minor Kassite component. Historian Richard Fry notes that they spoke a non-Semitic and non-Indo-Iranian language that was related to Urartian, with no known modern language connections. But, like all the peoples of the Iranian plateau, the Manaeans had been subject to an ever-increasing Iranian penetration. In fact, two of the earliest known Manite kings, Udaki and Aza, have names linked to old Iranian terms. Sargon's Annals for 719 give a detailed discussion of a civil war taking place in Manaean territory. He records that, the people of the cities Shuan Dahul and Duke Duka, fortified cities, plotted resistance against Iranzi, the Manaean, the king, their lord, one who pulls my yoke, and put their trust in Matati of the land Zakirtu. Zakirtu was a former province of Manea that had apparently declared independence. Sargon continues that 
Matati of the land Zakirtu gave these two fortified cities his combat troops, together with their cavalry, and thus aid was provided to them. I mustered the numerous troops of the god Asur and marched forth to conquer those cities. I shattered their very strong walls with a mighty battering ram, leveling them to the ground. I carried off as booty their people together with their property. I destroyed, demolished, and burned down those cities with fire. He then records that three more Manaean cities, Sukaya, Bala, and Abitikna, deliberated an evil plan that was to tear out the root of their own land and gave their word to Rusa the Orartian to do obeisance to him. Because of the crime that they had committed, I deported them from their own places and resettled them in the land Hatti and the land Amuru. So, the episode tells us a couple of things. First, Manea was clearly a hot mess. Second, Rusa was angling to break off cities to expand his kingdom's influence. Cities that belonged to Aranzi of Manea, a vassal of Sargon II. And third, that his latest attempt had failed. Sargon's focus for the rest of 719, along with 718 and 717, was mostly out west, in Malatya, Tabal, and Carchemish. But for 716, the eponym chronicle says a lot with a little, with its typically terse entry of Tumanea. Fortunately for us, Sargon II gives much more detail in his annals. In my sixth regnal year, Russo the Arartian sent his mounted messenger with a mendacious message to Baghdati of the land Uishdish and the ruler of the land Zakirtu, governors of the land of Manea. He made them hostile to me, Sargon, and to Azza the son of their former lord, and made them side with him, meaning side with Rusa. So Aranzid apparently passed away and been succeeded by a son named Azza, who was now facing down his own rebellion. Sargon reports that the rebels brought about the rout of the Manaeans on Mount Uaush, a rugged mountain, and threw down the corpse of Azza, their lord, there. So, for the second time in four years, Rusa was busy fomenting rebellion in the Zagros kingdom of Manea. And honestly, it's a bit hard to know why he felt compelled to poke the Assyrian lion. Maybe his devastating victory out of the gate and the likely inconclusive follow-up with Tiglath-Pileser had given Rusa a healthy dose of false confidence. Or actually, a very unhealthy dose. Anyway, this time his proxies had gone so far as to kill the latest Manaean ruler, King Azza. Luckily for him, Sargon II was in a really good mood and decided to let bygones be bygones. I'm entirely joking. It was actually this. I raised my hands in supplication to the god Asur, my lord, that I might avenge the Manaeans. Then, on Mount Uaush the mountain where they had thrown down the corpse of Azza, I flayed the skin from Baghdati 
and then showed it to the people of the land of Manea. As for Ulusunu, who they had set on the throne of his brother Azza, and to whom they had entrusted all the wide land of Manea, the wrath of the god Asur was directed against Ulusunu, ordaining the dissolution of his land. In the face of this existential threat, Ulusunu doubled down on his allegiance to Urartu and even convinced a few neighboring kings to join him. The ones he names are Eti of Alabria and our record-keeping friend from earlier this episode, King Asurleu of Kerala. Sargon's response was, I'm going to say, unsurprising. Angrily, I mustered the numerous troops of the god Asur and set out to conquer the land Manea. I enveloped those lands like a swarm of locusts and overwhelmed Izirtu, the royal city of the land Manea, as with a bird trap. I inflicted a major defeat on them. As a result, Ulusunu the Manean together with his whole land, assembled as one and grasped hold of my feet. The only surprise in the whole affair is actually what happened next. Sargon reports that I then had mercy on them and overlooked Ulusunu's crimes. I had him sit again on his royal throne and receive tribute from him. The kings that Ulusunud enlisted to join his rebellion didn't get off quite as lucky. Sargon notes that I deported E.T. of the land Alabria together with his family and the people of the land Kerala. Historians M. Dondamayev and E. Grantovsky add that Asurleu, ruler of Kerala, was skinned alive, and his territory was annexed to Zamua. Sargon remained in the Zagros for some time, reducing rebel cities and reinforcing Assyrian control. But the following year, 715, Rusa compelled him to return. This time, the Orartian king convinced a Manean governor named Dayuku to defect, along with his 22 fortresses. Sargon quickly reconquered the fortresses and deported the governor. But seriously, it was becoming blazingly evident that all this was only a band-aid. If he really wanted to staunch the rebellions, he needed to terminate their source, the Urartian Empire of Rusa I. And it was in 716 or 715 that Sargon began making detailed plans for the total obliteration of Urartu. Again, Rusa may have misjudged the Assyrian threat based on some fortunate early engagements. And there's even a chance that, if it were only Assyria, Rusa may have actually stood a chance. Unfortunately, at the very same time, the bleeding edge of a new and overwhelming power was stalking Rusa's northern frontiers. It was a force that shared a common history with the Iranian rulers of Bronze Age Mitanni and Kassite Babylon, as well as the coming classical powers of the Scythians, Medes, and Persians. And over the next few decades, it would kill one major regional king and lead to the deaths of two others. 
As some of you may have guessed, I'm talking about the advent of the Iranian nomadic steppe people called the Sumerians. That's not Sumerians, it's Sumerians, with a very capital C. Guys, I could do a whole series on the history of the peoples who occupied the Pontic Caspian steppe from the 5th millennium BC right down to the Classical Age. In fact, maybe I will someday, who knows. But to keep things a little more recent, the Sumerians were an eastern Aaronic equestrian nomadic people originating on the Pontic Caspian steppe, basically the region just north of the Caucasus Mountains. Although they were culturally indistinguishable from the neighboring Scythians, they formed a separate ethnic unit. Like the Scythians, they owed their success to the development of mounted nomadic pastoralism and the adoption of effective weapons suited to equestrian warfare. In the past few decades, the Sumerians had been dislodged from their Pontic Caspian home by a significant movement of the nomads of the Eurasian steppe. The apparent instigators far to the east were a related Central Asian nomadic Aaronic tribe, either the Mesogatai or the Isidones. Their westward migration pushed the bulk of the Scythians into the Caspian and Caucasian steppes, where they assimilated most of the Sumerians and conquered their territory. The rest of the Sumerians were forced to migrate across or around the Caucasus Mountains into the region of Colchis along the Black Sea coast and the Araxes River Valley near Lake Savan. And you may remember that both these regions had recently been annexed to Urartu. The name Sumerian likely derives from one of two old Aaronic terms, either Gaia Mira, meaning union of clans, or gamira, meaning mobile unit, both of which seem super appropriate. They were conventionally known as gamirians, and the territory they held in the Transcaucasus was also called gamir. I'll post a super helpful map that tracks Sumerian migrations. According to historian Tim Bridgman, some of the earliest mentions of the Sumerians in Assyrian texts were in military intelligence reports about Urartu written by the Assyrian crown prince, Sargon II's son, Sennacherib. The reports describe the Sumerians as a numerous, well-armed, highly mobile military force considered to be a particularly dangerous threat to the security of both the Urartian and Assyrian empires. Sennacherib also reported to his father that, right around the time of our story, the Sumerians had attacked Urartu's province of Uwasi through the territory of the kingdom of Manea. As you can see on my map, Uwasi was located just southwest of Lake Urmia very close to the Urartian vassal kingdom of Musasir. Historian Askold Ivanchik relates that, in response, King Rusa launched a counterattack against the Sumerians at Guriania in modern Georgia. So, basically, an assault on their new homeland of Gamir. The major offensive featured Rusa himself, 
his Turtanu equivalent, as well as 13 governors, representing the combined armed forces of the kingdom. Despite this, they were heavily defeated by the Sumerians, and the governor of the Urartian province of Uasi was killed. So please put a pin in the fact that not only was the Urartian army thoroughly mauled by the Sumerians around 716 or 715, but the governor of the region closest to Musasir was killed. Because both of those things will factor into what comes next. So, hey Scott, what comes next? Well, it's probably easiest if I just let Sargon tell you. In my eighth regnal year, also known as 714 BC, I marched into the lands Menea and Media. I've also discussed Media, the land of the Medes, in previous Patreon mini-episodes. The important thing on this occasion is that not only were the Medes Assyrian allies, but they were also surprisingly urbanized. Or at least those allied with Assyria were. Sargon notes that, I received tribute from the people of the lands Menea, Elipi, and Media, whom he pointedly refers to as the city lords of the mountains. And again, I'll refer you to the Zagros map. Since the Medes were located southeast of Menea, the king apparently began the year with a swing through the central Zagros. But before too long, we get to the meat, a direct frontal assault on Urartu. I came across a map by historian H. Danismaz that shows all the possible routes Sargon may have used to invade the Urartian heartland. And they are literally, as they say, all over the map. But Occam's razor-wise, it seems likely that Sargon looped back up through Menea, then entered Urartu via Uasi, the region whose governor the Sumerians had just killed. At some point between there and the capital of Tushpa, King Rusa led a combined defense, or at least what remnants he could pull together in the wake of the Sumerian defeat but his efforts were effectively doomed. According to Sargon, I defeated countless troops of Rusa the Urartian and captured 260 members of his royal family and his cavalrymen. In order to save his life, Rusa mounted a mare and took to the hills, an ancient Assyrian trope for depicting a coward. In the wake of the battle, Sargon records stripping Urartu of captured Menean territories and returning them to his ally, Ulusunu of Menea. And then, well, Sargon kept right on marching through Urartu. Again, as to the exact route, you pays your money and you takes your chances. But the outcome in each region was the same. Every fortified city and settlement he encountered was conquered and burned to the ground. Dozens, at least, of cities in all, and maybe a thousand settlements. Sargon next records receiving horses, oxen, and sheep and goats as tribute from Ianzu, king of the land Nairi, in his fortified city Hubishkia which suggests that Sargon had followed the western shores of Lake Urmia before cutting westward into Hubishkia, which positioned him perfectly for a fatal blow on his campaign's final target, 
the Urartian vassal kingdom and major religious center of Musasir. Sargon relates that, as for Urzana of the city Musasir, who had transgressed against the oath sworn by the gods Asur and Marduk and sent tribute to Rusa the Urartian, the god Asur my lord encouraged me. And so I constantly moved on with only my own single chariot and one thousand of my ferocious personal cavalry and foot soldiers who were skilled in battle. Sargon appears to be characterizing Urzana as a former vassal, at least for a time, who defected back to Urartu, which, according to historian Peter Dubofsky, may have actually been the case. At the very least, Urzana and Sargon had had pretty warm relations. Historian Karen Radner highlights a recovered Assyrian cylinder seal, an apparent gift to Urzana by Sargon, decorated with the image of a four-winged, bareheaded genius throttling two ostriches. A text on the cylinder seal reads, Seal of Urzana, the king of Musasir, the city of the raven of which, like a snake in difficult mountains, the mouth is open. Which makes zero sense until you realize it's a play on the words Musu, exit, and Siru, snake, which combine to make up Musasir. And then, well, I guess it makes slightly more sense. Look, not everyone gets Sargon's humor, okay? But those, of course, were the good old days. During his advance on Musasir, Sargon relates traveling on horseback over easy terrain and on foot over difficult terrain. Then, when Urzana of the city Musasir heard of the advance of my expeditionary force, he flew off like a bird and took to the rugged hills. I surrounded the city Musasir, the abode of the god Haldi, and brought out Urzana's wife, his sons, his daughters, thousands of his people, and countless livestock. Though he actually counted them pretty precisely. Similar to Carchemish, the plunder was vast, including 34 talents and 18 minas of gold, 160 talents and two and a half minas of silver, shining copper, tin, and precious stones in large quantities. As a final humiliation, Sargon records that I brought his deities, Haldi and Bagbartu, into the temple of the god Asur. So, yeah, the cult idols of the chief gods of the Urartian pantheon were now symbols of Assyrian conquest. And really, he should probably just stop there, but Sargon loves to roll in the gloat. I caused there to be lamentation in the wide land Urartu. I made Rusa, their king, use flint blades, razors, and scalpels to slash himself in mourning for as long as he lived. I made Musasir part of the territory of Assyria. The awesome splendor of the god Asur, my lord, overwhelmed Rusa the Urartian. And so, with his own iron dagger, he stabbed himself in the heart like a pig and put an end to his life. Though he'd continue ruling for nearly a decade, 
The destruction of Urartu and Musasir would be Sargon's greatest legacy. As I mentioned back in episode C20, we actually have a detailed relief of Musasir's Temple of Haldi, recovered from Sargon II's new royal city of Dur-Sharukin. I'll post a picture. As Radner relates, the illustration of Haldi's shrine, with its unique roof construction and its facade decorated with shields, spears, and statues, is perhaps the most celebrated architectural representation in all of Assyrian art. Though some scholars question Sargon's portrayal of despair driving Rusa to suicide, none dispute that the Urartian king died in 714 BC, to be succeeded by his son, Argishti II. Though the proximate cause was Sargon II, Rusa was also the first major king to lose his life, at least in part, as a consequence of Cimmerian actions. To say the next such death would be highly ironic would be a fairly colossal understatement. So here we sit on the threshold of the series finale. And as I've hinted a few times, the final episode will be a bit different. One of the great things about this season is that my Patreon supporters helped me purchase the Annals of Sargon II, which provide pretty voluminous detail. I've also got another great book of Luwian hieroglyphic translations. The upshot being that these books allow me to relate a narrative using largely primary sources. So, next episode will be entirely 100% in character, with none of my usual digressions. Which also means you won't have your helpful narrator Scott to help you unpack things or point you to maps, etc. I will definitely be posting references, maps, images, all the usual stuff. I just won't be referring to them during the episode. Instead, you'll be getting the voice, or, you know, my take on the voice, of Azati Wadas, a senior figure in the court of Awariku of Quay. Just in case you've been wondering why I've been keeping Awariku pretty front and center. I'll be using Azati Wadis' own words, Sargon II's own words, and a bit of my own connective tissue to give you what I hope is an interesting take on the events of the next two decades. Most of the characters are from previous episodes, so should at least be a little familiar. And definitely remember that when I mention the Gamerians, I'm talking about the Sumerians. So, let's have some fun. I hope you enjoy the final episode, and thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network along with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, The Explorers Podcast, and other great shows.